for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, why do people lose it on service workers? It's a question that comes up again and again, and it has now after a video of an Edmonton couple berating an employee at a fast food drive through window went viral. But what prompts it, and how do you get people to stop? You'll know whistle while you work. Well, how about if your work is whistling, or your art form, better yet? Molly Lewis is definitely the most in-demand professional whistler in the world right now, certainly in Hollywood, a craft she's honed over the years, including as a lounge act in L.A. Well, she caught the attention of the team behind the Barbie movie soundtrack. Other famous artists have worked with her, including Dr. Dre and Jackson Brown. And her first album is out this week, appropriately called On the Lip. She joins me to tell me all about it. Lynx Air is flying off into the sunset. The Calgary-based low-cost airline announced late Thursday that it will cease operations and ground all flights as of end of day Sunday, setting rising operational costs amongst other factors. So what impact will that have on consumers broadly? And can low-cost carriers actually survive in this country? The Reclaws are one of the hottest acts in Canadian country music right now, and the sister-brother combo of Jenna and Stuart Walker have a new single out called I Grew Up on a Farm, an ode to their childhood in North Dumfries, Ontario, not far from Hamilton. They're with me to talk tunes, touring, and how they wound up in Romania to shoot a video for one of their recent big hits. But first, it's been more than 20 years since police raided the BC farm of one of Canada's most prolific serial killers. Robert Picton is now serving a life sentence after being convicted of six counts of second-degree murder. Today, the 74-year-old became eligible to apply for day parole. The chances of that are almost nil or nil, but it has raised a lot of questions about how the legal system accommodates killers such as Picton. We try to find some answers. It's been more than 20 years now since police raided the BC farm of one of Canada's most prolific serial killers. Robert Picton, now 74, was charged with 26 murders in the deaths of women who disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side over a period of several years. But he's serving a life sentence after being convicted of just six of those second degree, of second degree murder in just six of those cases. And today he became eligible to apply for day parole. Now, I, I stress on he's eligible to apply for day parole. It doesn't mean he has, but he is eligible. The cousin of a murdered woman linked to Picton says she'll always be afraid that he might be let free no matter how slim those chances are. Lorelei Williams says it's disgusting that Picton is eligible to apply for day parole and no one from the justice system reached out to tell her that the date was approaching. I've been told by many people, including lawyers, like there's no way. But there's always that thing, there's something there's that fear there. It's like, what if? It's because I, I don't trust the system. There's always going to be that fear. Yeah, that is a big part of this case, of course, was the trust between the system and the families of the many victims. Dozens of friends and family members of those victims gathered at the former site of Picton's Farm in Port Coquitlam, B.C. last night, where they hung posters, flowers, and red dresses in memory of their loved ones. Um, Again, it's extremely unlikely that Picton would ever be released, but those there last night said the mere fact that he can apply is disgusting. One saying, Picton should not walk on this earth. He doesn't deserve to take one step out of where he is. He needs to stay where he is until he dies. Um, He's currently being held in a maximum security prison about 600 kilometers northeast of Quebec City. Joining me now is Rob Danu. He's a former Crown prosecutor and a criminal defense lawyer now with Danu Dollywall Law Group. Uh, Rob, thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure to be here, Ben. The Picton name, right? It doesn't really matter what the what it is. The Picton name just infuriates people when the justice system moves in a certain way. 
Absolutely. This is one an individual who committed one of the most abhorrent crimes possible for a human being. So, you know, it's completely easy to understand why the general public sees this as re-traumatizing families who now have to appear before the parole board when this individual simply has no chance of being granted parole. Yeah, I mean, talk about that, because I think everyone understands that his chances of being granted any form of parole, whether it be day parole or any other kind of parole, are very, very slim. Um, and, And that is true. Well, absolutely. And look, parole is one of the most controversial and misunderstood aspects of the Canadian criminal justice system at the best of times. And when you have a case like the Picton matter, which is an extreme outlier in terms of the nature of the offenses, we really have to dig back and try to understand what is the purpose of the parole system in the first place. And ironically, the primary purpose of the parole system is to protect the public. And that is through a gradual and supervised release of individuals back into the community with conditions that are aimed to protect the public as well as to rehabilitate the offender. And we have this system because we know if we just release offenders after their full jail sentence without any resources, without the proper life skills, they're much more likely to reoffend. Right. And yet in certain cases, there is this, I think, overwhelming feeling that some people deserve to be locked up and the key deserves to be thrown away. And that's just not, I mean, in this case, that's just not how the system operates, even for someone like Robert Pickton. It's not, because look, if we look back, you know, when legislatures, legislators made these laws decades ago, they weren't thinking about what happens if a serial killer or a mass murderer comes up for parole. These laws are meant for the vast majority of offenders and releasing them gradually so as to protect the public. And with regard to the laws, they have to apply equally to everyone, even extreme outliers such as Mr. Pickton. Otherwise, you don't have the rule of law, which is fundamental to any democracy. And the fact of the matter is that parole actually works to protect our communities, and the vast majority of individuals don't breach their conditions. But here we have an extreme situation where it doesn't make a lot of sense that this individual is coming up for a hearing. What does this mean, and you mentioned it already concretely, but what does this mean for the families of his victims in terms of we don't know whether he's applied for day parole yet, the the parole board won't say. Uh, Who knows if he will, but if he does, what happens then? Well, look, this is the injustice here, right? Uh, And I think Canadians have a right to be outraged, despite the fact that the system actually works. And these families are now going to have to relive their trauma. They're going to have to appear, well, they don't have to, but they have the choice, certainly, to appear before the parole board to give the reasons why Mr. Pickton should not be released. And that sounds somewhat ridiculous because it seems to be quite obvious as to why he shouldn't be released. But it's that fear that the individual on your show was just talking about. You know, what if, even though lawyers are telling these individuals that there's no chance of him being released, it's that fear that the justice system, if they don't have faith in the justice system in the first place, what if the justice system were to fail? What if he were to be released? And it's that reopening of those old wounds that have taken so many years to heal to the extent that they have healed. Yeah, and one of the things we that was raised again during the Bernardo case, speaking of people who people would hope the key would be thrown away, uh, when he was transferred to another prison, this is a slightly different different story, but the communication with families, and I think one of the reasons families were upset here again, is that this day was approaching and the way they found out was not through the system. They found out through other through other people, right? Yes, and that's uh, and that, you hit the nail on the head. This is where the government has dropped the ball. They dropped the ball in the Bernardo case. They've dropped the ball here in the Picton case and that they should have reached out to families 
they should have given them the opportunity to prepare themselves for this and show that they actually care about how the families will be impacted by the possibility of this parole hearing. Instead, the families have to hear it from their own lawyers. You've been on both sides of, of this system. Why is that? I mean, in, in your experience, how is it that those things aren't done? Well, well, you're dealing with a government. You're not dealing with a private uh, business, which has a you know massive uh, marketing uh, you know, individuals who are in charge of marketing and making sure that the, the optics of whatever they do is uh, put in the best possible light. So unfortunately, the government sometimes drops the ball in terms of just the way the government works. It's not uh, Pepsi or Starbucks where they're concerned about ultimately how the public's going to react to what they do. Which is unfortunate because not, not that they are Pepsi or Starbucks, but ultimately you would think that within uh, the system that there would be an acknowledgement that's, that, some, that you know, families should be kept abreast of these situations, specifically with people like this, where, where chances are it's going to get out somehow, some way, and they're going to find out from somebody eventually. Best to tell them themselves, no. And and just to be fair, this is not to say that the people who are working in the parole board or in the government do not care about these families. They do. But simply the the system of government we have or any system of government is not necessarily geared towards um, making sure that the impact of these types of situations is minimized as it ought to be. Right. I, I, do, I mean, this came up a lot today, a lot of different politicians talking about this. We remember back to 2011 when the then Harper government passed more stringent laws. I don't think they would have applied to Robert Picton, actually, because he'd already been sentenced at that point. But they tried to apply laws whereby you could essentially throw away the key. And those were in place for a while. Then the Alexandre Bissonnette case came up, the Quebec City mosque shooter, and the Supreme Court overturned those. Uh, what was the reasoning behind that? I mean, did you think the original legislative change was was good, and why did the Supreme Court decide that it was not? Well, look, I've seen both sides of the justice system, but both on the Crown side and the defense side. So it's very subjective in terms of what anyone's opinion may be. But the, the Supreme Court essentially said that to have a system of justice where you take away all possible hope for an offender, it's simply cruel and unjust punishment. And our system of justice is not just about punishing people. It's about the possibility of rehabilitation. So there are situations like Mr. Picton who are simply never going to see the light of day. But each situation is so different that the court wants to have, wants to allow the parole board to have the discretion to make the right decision. Right. So in this case, essentially what the Supreme Court said was that you can't do this. You, you can't possibly stack either the sentences or stack the parole eligibility. Absolutely. It's, it's contrary to our system of justice. It's contrary to the charter. It's contrary to the fundamental basic principles of a democracy. This is not North Korea. This is not Russia where we can throw or we want to throw people away forever into the gulag. The system of justice that we have can make mistakes, and we want to make sure that we're able to rectify those mistakes. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the at the conversation that always starts during these these particularly emotional, heated and moments full of anger, it, it seems to me there are a lot of politicians who jump in and suggest that this shouldn't be so. Uh, and I think they're all fully aware of what the Supreme Court has decided here. Uh, what do you make of the politics then of this? I mean, I think it, it touches on something that people it touches on a contradiction that people have a hard time understanding. Well, absolutely. And I think we are playing a lot of politics here. You know, we've uh, recently had a quote from Pierre Polivier that uh, he would um, reinstitute that law where you would have consecutive life sentences for murder, which has already been ruled unconstitutional. That's simply not going to happen. It's not possible. So even though the parole board is an apolitical body, body, it's supposed to be at arm's length from the government. The fact of the matter is that this case is so infamous that the Minister of Public Safety is definitely going to have this on his radar 
we saw the political blowback when it came to Paul Bernardo when he was the transfer was approved from a max to medium security prison. You can imagine what a political disaster it would be for the Liberals if Mr. Picton were to be somehow released. Right. So in this case, just so listeners understand, even if a new government were to come back in and reintroduce the very same laws that were put in place back in 2011 and overturned, I suppose they could try. I mean, they could tweak them and try again. No doubt they would be challenged again. Absolutely. And the Supreme Court, it was a, it was a nine to nothing decision. So the, the entirety of the Supreme Court said this law is unconstitutional. Now, what, the, what legislators could do is they could try to carve out an exception for extreme cases such as Mr. Picton or a serial killer or a mass murderer where parole is simply not available, that may work, but it would still have to withstand constitutional muster. Right. Is there not, tell me a bit about sort of the dangerous offender uh, sort of uh, declarations and so on, because that, that does fit into this, but it, I'm not quite clear on how it would work in a case like this. Well, even dangerous offenders have the opportunity to um, be released if they can show that they have minimized their risk uh, to the community. So the possibility of release is available to anyone in Canada. Rob Danu is with us this half hour, former Crown Prosecutor and Criminal Defence Lawyer in BC. He's with Danny Dollywall Law Group right now, or uh, rather Danu Dollywall Law Group. Rob, what will you be looking for now as this proceeds? Because right now we've had this date, obviously, today. We don't know whether Picton has even applied for day parole, but there must be some things that you'd be looking out for in the short term, at least. Well, that's the very first question. Is is Mr. Picton actually going to apply for day parole? So how it works is that an individual with a life sentence is allowed to apply for day parole once they've served all but the final three years of their sentence. So Mr. Picton is up for full parole in 2027. So we'll be reliving this again in 2027. So the first question is, is he even going to apply? If he applies, we know that the parole board primary concern is going to be protection of the public. And there's three overarching factors that they're going to look at. So they're going to look at the actual offenses or Mr. Picton's criminal history. That is going to be the overriding and deciding factor because this offense was so extreme. There was so um, so much pain involved in terms of the family's suffering that that is going to overwhelm the other two factors, which is you know how well he's done in prison, what programming he's taken, and whether there's a release plan that can ensure the public safety. And it does not matter how many programs Mr. Picton took, how well he did in programming. The fact of the matter is these crimes are so abhorrent, abhorrent that the no parole board is going to grant him um, day parole or full parole. Yeah, one of the I, I think one of the the things that sticks in a lot of people's craw here is the fact that he was just convicted on those six second degree murder charges, right? They didn't a lot of those murders or a lot of those missing women uh, those those murders were never prosecuted. And I think as this uh, case as his case winds its way through the legal system, I think there's still a lot of anger about why that wasn't done. Specifically when they see that he's now up for day parole, I mean, maybe a misunderstanding of the way the system works, as you've explained it. But there's still a lot of emotion around this one, and that's I think part of it as well. Absolutely. And the the families have a right to feel a sense of injustice that they did not have their day in court. But when the Crown Prosecutor's Office is looking at this, it's a tough decision for them as well. They want to make sure they do right by the families. But in this case, where you have an individual who's received the maximum possible sentence allowed under Canadian law, there's really not much more point in terms of what's going to happen at the end of the day to pursue every single possible uh, offense. Well, Rob, I appreciate your insight on this tonight. I know there's a lot of emotion around this, so it's good to get uh, to get an expert view on it. My pleasure. 
If you're a fan of country music or Canadian music, period, you've probably heard or caught a glimpse of my next guests at some point in the past few years. Siblings Jenna and Stuart Walker uh, are the Canadian country music duo, The Reclaws. Uh, That's Walkers, by the way, sort of (laughs) with the letters shifted around, a bit of a word jumble there. Um, Their mom, I think, came up with that for them. Their breakout track, Long Live the Night, back in 2017, was not only a huge hit, it became the theme song for the CFL Thursday night broadcast, and they even performed it at the Grey Cup in Ottawa in 2018. And that was just the beginning. There's been a whole bunch of success since 2021 was a record-breaking year when their TikTok hit What the Truck earned platinum certification, making it the fastest ever Canadian country song to go platinum in the streaming era. Uh, in 2023, they landed three Juno nominations, hosted the 2023 Canadian Country Music Awards. Have a listen to that. We are so excited to be here. We are the Reclaws, born and raised on the outskirts of Hamilton. It's been 12 years since we attended our first CCMA Awards, hashtag CCMA Awards, and it's just so happened to be right here in Hamilton as well. We also won our first CCMA for Rising Star right here in this arena. Yes. I remember feeling like I was going to faint and collapse like all at the same time, kind of like we're feeling right now. I do feel a little faint, <laughs> but needless to say, Thank you for accepting your hometown kids as your host this year, Hamilton. Yeah, it was a really special moment for them because, of course, it was close to home, only about 45 minutes from where, where they grew up in North Dumfries. Uh, the pair, two of five kids, Stuart being the only boy. Soon after, they landed their fourth number one with Honky Tonkin' About featuring Drake Milligan. We'll talk about how cool that video was. They went a long way to shoot that one. So they have eight Juno nominations, eight CCMA awards, four Canadian number ones, uh, two double platinum, eight platinum, and 13 gold singles, and a gold certified debut album. All of it. And now they have a new single out that you just heard, I Grew Up on a Farm, and it's a nod to growing up on the family fun farm that they did called the Yeehaw Adventure Farm. And believe it or not, that's where they got their start performing. And what a lesson it was. Stuart Walker, Jenna Walker, Jenna Walker country music duo, The Reclaws, joined me now. Thank you both. Wow. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. It is. Uh, tell me a bit about the new song, because I, I was obviously listening to it, but it says so much about, uh, about your background, too, because you did, in fact, grow up on farm. We did. We really did. It wasn't, and it wasn't really a normal farm. It was an adventure farm. It was called Yeehaw Adventure Farm. And our entire family, like all seven of us, dressed up like hillbillies on weekends in October. And we would do like entertain thousands of people that came to our farm. So we had every animal, but every animal was like part of the show. Uh, It was our childhood and it definitely made us who we are today. (laughs) Stuart, where where did that, where did the inspiration come from? Your parents sound like they were, you know, they had, they had the creative gene, right? Yeah, they, uh, we actually, for this song in particular, for so many years, we go into interviews and they'd be like, so like, are your parents musical? Do they sing? Do they dance? Like what instruments did they, we'd be like, nothing, they're useless. Like they like, they don't know how to do anything, but they like put on like pig races, like Jenna was saying, my dad dressed up as a woman, like this is doubtfire. And like, they like entertain, they really taught us how to entertain at a very young age. So we owe it to them uh, with this single. We wanted to just give them a little bit of a, mm-hmm. a nod. Yeah. <laughs> And Jenna, I mean, you you had to perform, right? And and if anyone who has ever been to anything like that knows, that's really hit or miss. Sometimes people are listening, sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's fine, sometimes it's chaos. So you really cut your teeth performing in a in an atmosphere like that. Yeah, I mean, every nerve that you thought you ever had was gone because our mom was like, "Get out there!" Like she needed time filler during the pig races, 
And she knew we could kind of sing. So she was like, get out there. Like we need time in between. And these people are, they expect a show. So there was actually no time for nerves. It was just like on and on. It taught us so much about just going with the flow and learning to entertain in so many different ways, like an act and then also singing. It was, it was quite a childhood. And put on, and put on a Southern accent in Southern Ontario. Yeah. Is it a bit weird? Yeah. (laughs) I used to spend time around yeah, there for work. Fun. I think Canadians forget that, I mean, because you're just a short drive from Hamilton and a really short drive to Kitchener and, and Waterloo and so on, it, mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, you feel like you're right kind of in the middle of urban southern Ontario, but you're really not in in, in, in certain stretches uh, just off the main highways. Yeah, you're not. Definitely. But, no, and, yeah. but you are close to everything. Like, I remember being like, we could get to the airport so quickly, but you were in the middle of nowhere. It was very weird, but... Yeah, it was hard to get friends to come out to our farm. That's for sure. It'd be like they wouldn't. <laughs> our friends wouldn't come because they knew if they were coming to our farm, they weren't coming to hang out. They were putting. They're getting put to work, and so they hated it. Yeah, really? I literally had two, yeah. five, two friends, two friends in elementary school. I was like, "Do you guys want to come to my house again?" Like, no. Last time we did that, we built a fence. I was like, "Huh." Right. Okay. Oh, well, toughen them up. We'll go to your house up. then. Toughen them up. Yeah. What, forget video games. Forget video games. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No None video games. None of that in our house. Stuart, tell me a bit about just the inspiration for I Grew Up on a Farm because it's one of those, I mean, there is a lot in it that's um, that, that rings very true. And I mean, you've done lots of kind of different sounding countries, so such a varied uh, genre these days. But this really is kind of like a straight up ode to ode to farms, right? Yeah, definitely. And like Honky Talking About was definitely a very country-leaning song. And with Album 5, we kind of want to start that way. And then the title, I actually got it from the movie Meet the Parents. I don't know if you've you've seen that movie. I have. I've tried to remember that that line. I related related so much with him because everyone's looking at him because I think he was lying. He was trying to impress the father-in-law. And he was like, I milked my sister's cat. And he's like, I don't think you can milk a cat. And everyone's quiet and they're looking at him at the dinner table. It's like a really awkward moment. He goes... I grew up on a farm. <laughs> That's the inspiration <laughs> it was like, for it. It was a perfect thing to say. And I was like, the amount of times I've told stories about stuff we had to do with manure alone. Everyone's like, <laughs> wow. I'm like, I, I grew up on a farm. It really doesn't phase me. <laughs> yeah. I'm a city kid. So like going to the park to me was a, it was a bit of an adventure. You know? And, and the <laughs> yeah. few times you'd end up sort of, you know, I had friends who had farms or I had a good friend who, uh, whose grandparents had a farm in Nova Scotia. It is a different way of life in many ways. And part of it, and I imagine it's probably served you both well in the career you have now, is that it teaches you an awful lot about hard work and discipline. Yeah, Definitely. for sure. I mean, it taught us everything we know. From a young age, we were working pretty hard. <laughs> Honestly, I'm like uh, ready to retire. But uh, no, I'm kidding. But it's been, I mean, it taught us so much. And I think what's so cool about this song is it's kind of through the past two years have been crazy for us. And we felt like we needed to go kind of go back to our roots as who we are, who we were when we started. And we were reminded of that with COVID and a bunch of family stuff that happened. And we were brought back to our family and the closest people to us. And this song kind of like came out of that. And we recorded it. We wrote it in December and we recorded it and had it out whenever we had it. I don't even know what day we put it out, but it was such a quick transition. It was the fastest transition we've ever had on a song. But I think it's because it felt so much of who we are right now, which is so rare for for artists. I think I think you hold on to songs a lot. So it's cool to finally have it out. 
Yeah, I guess with all the success, I mean, I was watching you perform at the Grey Cup. I mean, that whole explosion uh, w w early on. And then, of course, it's just been one thing after the other. Uh, Truck, it was huge uh, on TikTok and sounded very different than you had the you had the, you know, a bunch of recent 11 beers. There's been just it's been really fast. So I guess sometimes you got to try and keep your feet on the ground a little bit. That's not always easy. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I mean, we're reminded a lot of like to come back and slow down, but it, I mean, we're just trying to grab onto it because it is our mm -hmm. dreams coming true. I think, I think we, and we know how special it is and how it can be taken away so quickly. I mean, we saw that with COVID and we were reminded of like, wow, we love this and it can be terrifying when it's taken away. What do your parents think, Stuart? What's, what's I mean, what, what, what's the family reaction been like to, to the success? And, you know, obviously your siblings, right? So there's that dynamic in it as well. <laughs> For sure. Our, we have um, we have five kids in our family, four girls and myself. And every time, like they, for so many years, like so many years when the rec laws were nobody's, that we'd have like family, like dinners that always ended up being about the rec laws. Somehow the conversation was like that. And our younger two sisters, especially the youngest one, would always go, okay. I'll have dinner, but I'm leaving the second we start talking about the regulars. <laughs> and now they all love it because it's fun. And but they only want it. We always say they only want to come to the VIP moments, like the really, really cool and, moments. And, and it helps them pick up at the bar sometimes. If you're at the country bar, it's like, oh, <laughs> they drop your name. They drop your name. Yeah, they're like, yeah. oh uh, yeah. It, it was yeah. interesting watching look going back as I watched you host the CMAs, which was fantastic because it was in Hamilton, not far. It's also the place where you sort of won your first awards, which must have been must have been really special. Tell me about that, actually, because we've seen people, people who host uh, award shows come under a lot of scrutiny. And I'm wondering how it was for the two of you. Stuart, what was it like to get up there in front of your sort of a hometown audience and, and actually have to host the thing? We were, uh, that was one thing that was definitely out of our comfort zone when it comes to playing on stage and having our audience, that's our audience. It's, it's easy now. It's like, it seems like it's second nature, but for that, we actually, we hired an acting coach cause I, we just wanted to nail it. We wanted to crush it. And when you're up there for the first time, like instead of just thinking off the top of your head and talking to a crowd with a guitar in your hand, you're reading off a teleprompter and trying to not look like you're reading off a teleprompter. <laughs> and so that was a new experience for Jenna and I, but, uh, the acting coach really helps. And we, uh, I don't know. I, I thought we did a great job and it was, it, it was a ton of fun when it was <laughs> yeah, all over. Mm. It was also a super, it was very full circle because it was the same building that we won our first CCMA. Mm -hmm. The first time we ever played the CCMAs was in that building. It was so, like you're saying, so close to home in Hamilton. So it's like a lot of our family members were able to make it. It was, it was, it was epic. Jenna Walker and Stuart Walker are with us this half hour. Canadian country music duo, The Rec Laws. You'll, you'll know them. I mean, you've heard their music, I'm sure, uh, over time, whether it was on Long Live the Night, which was huge and also featured on CFL broadcasts on Thursday nights, was performed at the Grey Cup in Ottawa a while back, and a bunch of other hits since then. One of them was Honky Tonkin' About, which is relatively recent, by the way, with Drake Milligan, uh, who's actually a Texan, who is on America's Got Talent, I think, uh, who, who you may recognize from that. There's an incredible video for it, which I highly recommend you go watch, because it is looks like something... It looks like a movie and there's a very familiar face in it which I, i'll love to hear that story and then i didn't realize until after i read up on it that you actually went all the way to romania to shoot it now that is a long way from home how did that happen jenna okay it's just crazy actually i don't even really know we had figured out we're going to do it with drake which was so exciting for us he's so cool he's up and coming and he's amazing at what he does so it was really cool for us to do it with him and then found out his managers are also movie producers and one of them was shooting a movie in romania 
like a war movie in Romania. And he called Drake and called our team and was like, why don't you guys just shoot the music video here? They're like, you can use all of our behind the scenes. You can use all of our extras, everything. Just come, we'll get you in wardrobe. So we flew 13 hours to Romania to shoot the most epic music video ever. It was just unbelievable. Stuart, I mean, it is epic. Needless to say, I, mean, you turn, <laughs> I, I had seen it once and watched it again. I'm like, I forgot how it's like a little movie. It really did turn out like a movie. Um, yeah, well, we can get into the cameos in a second, but just the the actual fact that we flew in the day before, met Drake's management, met, met the whole crew that we were going to be doing with, didn't even see the set. And then day of, rolled into the set, saw this like old town. I was like, this is wild. They, they had horses, they had full set. It was like, I've never seen anything like it. Like I've, I've been to Hollywood one time and saw it from like yeah. afar, but like I've never been in the midst of it. So it was an absolute treat and a, a, an adventure. <laughs> yeah. It really was. And I had to pause it and then look it up because of course there is a very familiar face that shows up in a stagecoach to pick you up near the beginning of the video. And like, I, that can't be who I think that is. Oh, it is. It's really, it is. You've, you've seen happy Gilmore, you know? <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm like, I can like literally, I can only call him Shooter McGavin. <laughs> really? I, I'm sure he gets that quite a bit. Yeah, I know. I think he was kind of sick about it. Like between meeting him and him being in our music video and the jet lag, the whole thing doesn't feel real. It feels yeah. like you woke up from a dream and you're like, oh, that was a crazy dream. Like Shooter McGavin was in my dream. We were like doing a, we were dressed in old wear and I don't know. You know what I mean? It was really weird. Yeah. yeah. Christopher McDonald, by the way, for listeners who didn't. Yeah, sorry. Not Shooter McGavin. Yeah, Christopher, Christopher McDonald. I mean, it worked. The thing is, what it gave you, I think, and, and, and what was funny is watching the video for Truck It, which is so sort of, and you did a couple of videos on, on iPhones. It's just watching the difference between kind of the, the very organic process and something as polished as that. It was definitely uh, different ends of the spectrum. One was one was TikTok heavy and one was movie quality. <laughs> yeah. But it was uh, I, I, that's what I like about the Red Cloud is that we can do both. Yeah. Well, Jen, I have to say the one thing that always comes across and it came across at the, at the at the Country Music Awards and it came at the Canadian Country Music Awards and in the videos is is you look like you're having fun and you can't really fake that. No, you can't. I think that's kind of been our thing forever. I think if we're not having fun. It's not right. And I think our fans know that. They know at a rec law show, they're going to have a lot of fun, maybe too much fun. But I think it's just a good reminder. Like those are the songs I think we always, no matter what album we put out, there has to be a fun element to it because we love live shows and we write a lot for a live show. And those songs come out fun and sometimes obnoxious. Like with the truck, it's just, it's out, it's over the top. It's really a lot, but people love that. Country music fans love that. Stuart, I, I was what, listening to all your tracks back again and just seeing the difference, not just hearing them individually kind of on the radio or seeing the videos. It's amazing how much flexibility there is now in country music compared to say when I was growing up, when it was pretty rigid. You can do just about anything. I mean, some songs have a bit of a hip hop vibe to them. Obviously the latest doesn't. I mean, you can, there's a lot of room to move now in country. Absolutely. No, like I, even with what we were talking about with, I grew up on a farm, like we put that song out because it was almost like a call out to everyone that loved country 10 years ago. You didn't even have to grow up in the country, like grew up in a farm because we did, but like 
basically saying another way of saying I was country before country was cool. And the genre itself is dominating. Morgan Wallen is dominating billboard right now. Mm. If you look it up, like, it's just like Beyonce's like hopping on the train. It's just, it's, it's a very exciting time to be in this genre. Yeah. If you bought, if you bought your jeans with rip, with rips in them already, you might want, you might want to do it. You've you've been to American Eagle. I mean, I buy them with rips in them already. Yeah, like sure, Levi but... sells them rips now, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Originally not. <laughs> and you're and you're heading you're heading out, right? I mean, you all you always play gigs, but there's there's quite a few coming up in Ontario, as far as I could tell. And uh, so you're sort of just continuing to get to to play and and so on. And I'm sure the summer is already all booked up for you. Yes, it's 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 out of control, really. The the next couple months, and then leading yeah. into the summer. But like, we're so thankful. Thank God. Like this is the dream that we've wanted forever and and we get to do it. Like the fact that we get to talk to you and and you make us feel like we got something going on is is really cool. (laughs) Well, it's a great story. And and, and listen, I think a lot of Canadians watch you and think that could be someone I grew up with. And it's, there's just something really charming about, about the whole thing. And Stuart and Jenna, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, Uh, thank thank you you for having us. This is kind of sad news for the discount airline business or for air travel period in this country. Lynx Air, uh, Calgary-based Lynx Air, says its final flights will take place on Sunday as the company files for creditor protection, less than two years after the low-cost airline took to the skies. It had been another airline, by the way, in the past, but it sort of rebranded and relaunched as Lynx back in uh, 2022. Uh, The Calgary-based company announced on a news release late today that it has sought and obtained initial order protection from creditors under the company's Creditors Arrangement Act. So as of 12.01 a.m. Mountain Time on Monday, they're done. Scheduled flights continuing to operate until that time, apparently, but operations will cease at that point. They said in a news release that over the past year, Lynx Air has faced a number of significant headwinds, including rising operating costs, high fuel prices, exchange rates, increasing airport charges, and a difficult economic and regulatory environment. I guess we'll have to dig into all what that means. Um, The company added that efforts are being made to assist passengers affected by the move with those who have existing bookings bookings advised to contact their credit card companies to secure refunds for pre-booked travel. Transport Minister Pablo Rodriguez late today said he expects Lynx Air to get stranded passengers back home as soon as possible and to provide refunds if fares cannot be honoured. Uh, the airline employs about 160 pilots and flight crew members, according to the Airline Pilots Association. So what does this all mean for discount airlines in this country? Duncan D is the former chief operating officer at Air Canada, and he joins me. Duncan, welcome back. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. I mean, I was we were doing something not long ago on Flair Airlines, and there's sort of speculation about what kind of condition their condition is in. Um, did this come as a surprise that Lynx sort of uh, announced this news late today? Uh, it wasn't. It was a shock and not a surprise. Uh, if you remember, a few months ago, uh, Michael DeLuce, the CEO of Porter Airlines, actually predicted that one of the ultra low cost carriers would uh, succumb to the financial. Uh, pressures and uh, disappear. And so he's right on track. Um, This is something which many within the industry have been uh, paying attention to for quite some time and expecting one, if not more, uh, of these ultra-low-cost carriers would uh, disappear from the Canadian marketplace. Tell me a bit about those pressures, because uh, I mean we've spoken in the past, I think, about how Canada isn't uh, doesn't doesn't have a long history of ultra-low-cost carriers. But what are the pressures they're facing now? Um, Look, I mean, Canada has uh, airline graveyards filled with uh, uh, bodies of former airlines. And so, you know, uh, 
Lynx is following a long chain of uh, low-cost carriers and ultra-low-cost carriers that have started and stopped. One of the things which makes Canada particularly inhospitable to ultra-low-cost carriers is the fact that we've got huge ancillary charges in this country on top of the base fare. So, you know, many of your listeners who have traveled to Europe or Asia will uh, have taken advantage of special, really attractive ultra-low-cost carrier fares from places like, you know, London to Edinburgh for 20 pounds or, you know, uh, like I did last week from um, Kuala Lumpur to Jakarta, Indonesia for less than $30. And so those ultra low cost carrier fares are just impossible in Canada when you've got airport improvement fees that are charged just for setting foot in that building in the vicinity of about $40 if you're doing it at Pearson. Um, You know, and so when you look at those very enticing, ultra-low-cost fares, let's say $20. And by the time you add all of those fees and charges up, and it's now a $200 fare or $150 fare, then, you know, what ends up happening is the stimulative effect of ultra-low-cost carriers just is not possible in Canada where they're possible everywhere else. And so what these ultra-low-cost carriers in Canada are forced to compete with are the deep-pocketed, long-established incumbent carriers who, frankly, aren't about to yield uh, any of their uh, customer base or market share to a new entrant. Yeah. I I mean, in that sense, of course, yeah, but when I lived in London, it was it was ridiculous how inexpensive it was to fly at times. Sometimes you felt like it was too, too inexpensive. But in the case of Lynx, I mean, it was. I was reading something just the other day that someone thought they were okay. They were they were okay at this point that there wouldn't be any big problems. Uh, what do you think was the straw that broke the camel's back here? I guess there were many things that they talked about, but what do you think would would necessitate the decision? Now, I mean, we're in the middle of the winter. It feels like people are traveling a lot. They have sunshine destinations. They seem pretty busy. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, with the departure of their CEO a few months ago, um, people started speculating as to, first of all, why. Uh, You know, a CEO of an airline just doesn't, you know, decide one day that they're leaving unless, um, you know, they've got good reason to, and she never really articulated a good reason other than she wanted to head back to her family. Uh, And so, you know, I mean, I think that's certainly a good reason, but, you know, for many people within the industry, they were just wondering how somebody could make that move to come to Canada and then, you know, so few... Uh, months later decide that they're packing up and leaving. And so that's one of one indicator that uh, had people scratching their heads. But, you know, in terms of what's happening in the market, um, you know, in Canada, we have a highly, highly seasonal aviation market. So most of the money that these airlines make are, are made during the peak summer months. So you're talking about the months from about June to Labor Day. And so if you, an airline isn't able to had their uh, bank account during those months, then they enter the lean months of the fall, the winter, and unless they're able to stretch those dollars out until the next summer peak, which is, you know, in a couple of months, then they've really got no alternative. And what we had heard within the industry was that many of Link's investors were basically saying enough was enough and that they weren't willing to plow any more money into an operation that they saw little hope of recovering uh, their investment from. What happens then now? Because I noticed they were still flying. I mean, they're flying tomorrow uh, a little bit. They they were fly, certainly flying yesterday. They were flying mostly to Canadian destinations, but there was one flight to L.A. leaving from Calgary. What happens when an airline like this winds down? Because obviously 160 people are going to lose their jobs. Uh, there are no doubt passengers who are who are planning to return sometime after 
a Sunday night, or were, and there are people who book tickets in advance. So, yeah, there are 160 pilots that are losing their jobs. There are right. uh, a little under 500 uh, total employees at Lynx based on the last, pa- uh, on the last uh, corporate uh, uh, reports that they've issued. But in terms of the number of travelers, you know, it's really hard to tell how many of their uh, flights were operating um, at full capacity. Uh, th- you know, the, the number one thing that all travelers on Lynx Links should do who could be affected is call their credit card company. Um, so, uh, you know, most Canadians these days book that travel through their credit card company. And so through credit card chargebacks, most of them will be kept whole. That doesn't mean they're going to get home for the fare that they paid links for. Uh, you know, I know that the Federal Minister of Transport is asking other airlines to step in and step up and hopefully get uh, links travelers back home. But really, other airlines are under no obligation whatsoever to accept links tickets as if they were their own. And so, you know, I think travelers are going to sp- uh, who are going to be affected by the shutdown are going to have to spend the next few days trying to figure out what their plans are. Their first option is obviously uh, to call their credit card company if they have travel insurance then this is definitely one where that travel insurance should kick in. But in many other instances, unfortunately, Ben, travelers will be out of pocket, um, and not just out of pocket, but potentially stranded and waiting for several days to get back to where they uh, uh, came from. Duncan Dee is the former Chief Operating Officer of Air Canada. He's with us tonight talking about some big news in the Canadian airline industry late today. Lynx Airlines, the ultra-low-cost carrier based in Calgary, announcing that they are going out of business as of 12.01 Mountain Time on Monday. So late Sunday will be the end. Uh, in a press release late today, they said, despite substantial growth in business, cost reductions and efforts to explore a sale or merger, the challenges facing the business have become, quote, too significant to overcome. Uh, Duncan, there was some talk, there's some rumors going around, maybe, but a Flare links merger or something else. None of that happened. No, none of that happened. And uh, frankly, when that news came out, a lot of people were scratching their heads as to <laughs> which would be the stronger carrier uh, to initiate that merger. Uh, because, you know, generally when you've got uh, a merger, you've got a weaker carrier and a, and a stronger carrier that's coming in. And in this case, given what uh, has been publicly reported about uh, Flare's own finances, people are wondering in the industry who exactly was going to be able to pay uh, for the uh, fleet and uh, the corporate assets that uh, Lynx has, not to mention uh, the other business and ancillary um, products that uh, they had to, to sell a suitor. And so I think that that was probably a little bit more optimistic in terms of the prospects for uh, links, which obviously we now know uh, exactly uh, what type of financial situation they were facing. Yeah. What about what does this mean for Flair? Does this is this is this? I mean, I hate to say good news, but is it is it better for them now that they have less competition, or is it worse overall when another ultra low cost carrier goes down? Ben, it's a great question, and I think at this point in time, um, you know, any uh, anything that can reduce uh, the competitive uh, threats that Flair faces in the market is uh, considered positive for them, uh, given the fact that, uh, you know, uh, their financial woes have been widely reported. Uh, they certainly have had operational woes in the past, not as much this year, but certainly uh, over the last uh, summer and uh, winter peaks. And so I, I think that they were probably facing a tough go of it, uh, which is likely partly why they were motivated enough to consider a merger with Flair to reduce com- competition in the marketplace. So what they couldn't do 
by buying Flare up, they're effectively getting uh, through uh, Flare's failure. Uh, sorry, Lynx's, Lynx's failure and mm-hmm. Lynx's failure, not Flare. But uh, so uh, you know, I think that uh, it, that could generally be considered something positive. But is it enough, really, uh, to put enough wind in Flare's sails so that they can, you know, withstand? the uh, seasonal nature of Canadian travel, which is really only uh, guaranteed profitable during the summer peak. Uh, you mentioned earlier being in Asia, being in Europe, and taking advantage of, of all those you know great deals on airfare. It just allows more people to get around and see people they love and so on. And I mean, I get that the geography of it is, is a bit different, but it feels like with yet another ultra-low-cost uh, carrier going down in Canada, um, that, that unfortunately, once again, Canadian consumers are going to be the ones, ultimately, who are left paying more for, the, for a service that many other people around the world pay significantly less for even just to travel to a different city within your own country, not even that far. Or within your own province. You know, you, you've got yeah. folks in British Columbia, for example, or in Ontario who travel to the northern parts of the uh, province or the interior of B.C. who pay airfares that are really quite stunning for Europeans or Asians or even Americans to contemplate. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that we've seen in Canada over the years is just the inability uh, through pricing for new entrants to stimulate the market. One of the success stories, as you uh, rightly just described, in Europe, in Asia, and parts of the U.S., is that you don't just have the existing flyers flying more often. You've also got people who never flew before, who used to take the bus or the train, or who used to drive to see uh, relatives and friends over uh, weekends, uh, suddenly being able to do that. And, you know, with the new uh, work schedules that many uh, Uh, consumers have, that uh, they no longer have to be at uh, the office more than three or four days a week, every weekend suddenly becomes a potential long weekend. And when you go to Europe or Asia and you speak to airline CEOs, especially those at ultra-low-cost carriers, they're taking advantage of that new dynamic, which is not really something which Canadians have taken advantage of or even been able to. Uh, because when you've got uh, fares that are sub $100, so below $100, that's where the real stimulation occurs. But when you've got airport improvement fees in Canada that are just $40 for that one airport you set foot in, if you set, in, set foot in more than one airport, it's higher than $40. On and each so ticket, when on those each are, ticket, right? Yeah. On each ticket, in each ticket. And, and you've got the security charges on top of that, the NAV Canada charges on top of that, the GST and other taxes on top of that, and, you know, the fuel charges that are on top of that, it suddenly balloons. The Montreal Economic Institute said one-third of every airline ticket is comprised of these fees and taxes. And so when those fees and taxes are already close to $100 and the fare itself is on top of that, the stimulation just disappears. And so you don't have that same experience that you do when you're in London or in Prague or in Paris, when you suddenly look uh, on the web and see a brand new um, uh, ad pop up that says, you know, spend the weekend in Riga for uh, 10 euros. Uh, That's something that just doesn't exist in Canada. And so we don't really have that experience at all with that type of market stimulation. Well, Duncan, as always, thanks for doing this on short notice. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. When we think of whistling and music, you probably reach back to things like Snow White's Whistle While You Work. Maybe it's Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay, John Lennon's Jealous Guy. 
There's other ones. Monty Python's always look on the bright side of life. Alessandro Alessandroni was the famous whistler who did all the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns, including A Fistful of Dollars. I won't whistle for you because it's going to break my mic, but uh, you you know what it sounds like. But for my next guest, uh, her work really is whistling, or better yet, better yet, it's her art. It's her craft. Molly Lewis started whistling as a young kid, just like all of us do. I was never a very good whistler, but um, learning to whistle is one of those joyous discoveries of childhood. You annoy your parents with it to no end when you figure out how to do it. Uh, but after her parents showed her a documentary called Pucker Up, The Fine Art of Whistling, it became more than a hobby. She entered her first whistling competition more than a decade ago. She won top spot in one category at the Masters of Musical Whistling Competition in LA in, in 2015. And fast forward nine years, and it has been a whirlwind for the Sydney, Australia-born, L.A.-raised Molly Lewis. Her, her lounge show in L.A. became a huge success. You can watch little bits of it on YouTube. It's very, very well done. And she's worked with a bunch of people you know, Dr. Dre, Jackson Brown, Karen O of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. And she featured on the Barbie soundtrack with a version of the Billie Eilish Oscar-nominated and Grammy, Grammy Award-winning What Am I Made For? Uh, it plays in the closing credits as they roll, I believe. Have a listen. You recognize that song. Of course, it's been been everywhere this year so far. Well, after a debut EP in 2021, Lewis has now released her debut album called, appropriately enough, On the Lips. And if you're still thinking whistle while you work, you're in for a real surprise and a real treat. Molly Lewis joins us now. Uh, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. I mean, it's I, I saw on your YouTube page that uh, you had the whole, all the tracks out in the album, and it uh, must, be, must be great to see it. It is very exciting, and, you know, especially because just hearing from people who've been listening and enjoying, and, you know, you kind of sit on the record for a while, and uh, so, yeah, it's nice that it's finally out, and, you know, getting to hear from people who are liking it, it's great. Yeah, it must be, I think, and you've mentioned this before, uh, that people have have a reaction to, oh, she whistles, right? And I think until you see the, la- it's, it's when I started watching videos of the lounge show that I got just, that it's a lot, about a lot more than just the whistling. There's a lot going on within your, your shows and your craft. Yes, yeah. I mean, I do have a very difficult time explaining what I do <laughs> to people. <laughs> um, you know, I, I always brace myself for the, oh, what do you do question. Um, but yeah, it's kind of something that I feel, you know, people don't understand until they've heard the music or come to a a show and, and yeah, the show is very different to, uh, you know, it's a lot more than music. It's, um, it's an atmosphere and, you know, it's theatrical, it's a whole stage show. So, um, yeah, that's a whole other thing, but yeah, I hope, you know, the music stands alone outside of the live aspect but um yeah i think yeah. it's something you kind of see to understand sometimes it, it absolutely does stand alone and and you know i mean i remember the the, the barbie soundtrack and i'll ask you about that obviously but how did you how does one i mean I, I guess i sort of gave away a bit of the story but how you kind of got involved in it how does one perfect that how does one hone that craft um, well, I, you know, I've been doing it since I was a kid. And so I guess I've been doing it for all, like 30 years of my life. Uh, <laughs> right. and 
I wasn't kind of cons- consciously practicing every day, but I just by virtue of whistling all the time and annoying the hell out of my parents, um, I I'm sure you know I've I've honed my control and my my breath control and um, been able to kind of hit notes that I didn't used to be able to hit. Um, I think practicing songs that I love, like classical pieces, uh, and, and you know different pieces that are complicated that I I love and enjoy uh, has helped me get better. But yeah, it, it's mainly just kind of practicing music and 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 yeah, whistling whistling a lot. Short answer, do, whistling a lot. Yeah. You do because you do have an incredible range, right? I mean, you have an incredible variety of 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 sounds that when you listen to any of the songs on the new album or earlier ones, for that matter, it's an incredible amount of of different things that are going on. Different, I'm I'm not a musician, so forgive me, but it's uh, it just there's a lot there's a lot of variety going on within the sounds. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I mean, you know, I I never wanted to. I wanted the music to be very, you know, obviously. I love whistling and I'm good at whistling, but I, you know, I, I don't want people to get sick of whistling. I want it to be beautiful music full of different instrumentation. So right. yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not just a whistle record, I guess it's, there's a lot of other things happening. Yeah. I was explaining myself, Ali. I think there was just, there's a lot to your, it, it, there's a lot going on with the whistling. It's, you know, it's like oh. someone, it's like someone with a great voice who has a great range. There's a lot of different things going on. There's a lot of range in your whistling, obviously. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, and there's different techniques um, within what I do. You know, you, there's sometimes I, I'll make like bird-esque sounds or, um, you know, trill situation. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> did you have any? Um, did you have any mentors? I mean, is there someone you can go to? Who's I was talking about Alessandro Alessandroni because, of course, he was kind of he was a, the famous whistler that I knew because he did all the Sergio Leone movies. This is a long time ago, obviously. Uh, but it, 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 are there people out there? Can you go to coaches and 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 learn from them? Well, no, you can't. I, you know, it's rare I meet another whistler at all, but. Um, you know, Alessandroni is a hero of mine. I I I, I love his music and and his sounds. He was a big influence on me. Um, and I mean, I never met him, but I, I you know I was very influenced by his music. Uh, and there's a whistler who I do you know I, I do consider a mentor and a, a hero, um, Geert Chatreau, a whistler from the Netherlands who. He won the whistling competition in the documentary Pucker Up, and that's where I heard of him. And I wrote him an email at the time. You know, I was a kid, and I had never (laughs) met another whistler. I'd never talked to another whistler. And I, you know, I kind of wrote him this email thinking, like, you know, with a few questions. And I thought, wow, you know, this this famous whistler, he's probably going to be so busy, like it. He'll never reply to my email. And, you know, 30 minutes later, he wrote back and he wrote me a really lovely response oh, wow. and gave me some tips. So, um, and then we ended up meeting a few years later. And I've, you know, we've met over the years and at competitions and different whistle events. But yeah, he's, he's incredible. And I really, you know, he's got a great sense of humor. And he's also just like the best whistler I've ever seen. He must be really happy to have another pro in his ranks, like having have another one out there. That's, I mean, in his case, it must be great to have someone who's also pushing the boundaries a bit within the form. 
Yeah, either that or he wants to meet me at high noon and do a duel. <laughs> <laughs> But um, no, he's not. He's very sweet. And, you know, he we and this is the thing. It's such a small community. There are not many whistlers. So, you know, even though. Yeah, we're both professional whistlers. We're doing very different things. Like he's touring with Cirque du Soleil. He he makes albums, um, but you know it's a very different style of music to what I'm doing. Uh, so yeah, there isn't. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't. There's no competition in that regard. But um, yeah, it's it is it is nice to like I, I love talking with him because it's kind of the only time I can ever talk to someone else who understands what I do and, you know, what it's like. Yeah, I, I thought of that reading. You've been doing quite a few interviews lately. I was reading one in the Washington Post that sort of alluded that to, to that as well. Tell me about the Barbie thing with Mark Ronson and so on, because that must have been, I mean, I, I don't think anyone quite knew what that would become. I think the people made a predictive what it could have become, but people didn't quite know just how what a monster movie and monster soundtrack that was going to be. And and you got to be part of it as well, which is must have been great. Yeah, I I mean, you know, what I what's like what I've loved about whistling is that it's taken me so many different crazy interesting places and yeah, the Barbie soundtrack was just one of those where I was like, wow, how how did I get here? Um, but yeah, I I've always I've always loved film music and film scores. I grew up kind of listening to this film scores and really being influenced by this kind of music. Um, and so to be able to work on, a, you know, a score for such a phenomenon, like, you know, pop culture phenomenon, it was pretty exciting when it came out. And, you know, I was in New York City and, you know, people were walking all around the streets wearing pink. It was just, it was such a thing. <laughs> and yeah, to have a tiny little part within it was, it was great. Did you just get a call from? Did you get like a phone call or an email from Mark Ronson or or somebody? How did it How did it come come together? Yeah, so I, I work with a producer in Los Angeles called Tom Brennick, and um, he had worked on the score with Mark Ronson. Uh, he's known him for a long time, and they made music together in the past. And I guess Mark asked him for my phone number, and so. We were in the studio one day, and Tom was like, "Oh, Mark, after your phone number." He's like, "Expect an interesting phone call." And um, anyway, Mark called me, and he was like, "You know, we need some whistling, and can you be in New York tomorrow?" And I tomorrow, like, let me check my busy schedule. Uh, yes, I'll I'll be there. Um, so yeah, uh, that was really you know that was great. <laughs> Molly Lewis is with us uh, this half hour. That is from her debut album, On the Lips, which was released just recently. She is perhaps the most sought-after whistler in Hollywood right now. She featured on the Barbie soundtrack as well and in the movie. Uh, Molly, tell me a bit of, about making a whole album because it's got a real... It has a... I think someone referred to it as sort of like a David Lynchian vibe to it. I don't know if that's what you were going for, but I was really... Uh, I thought it was really cool that you were sort of gave a directions on how to listen to it like mood lighting is a must and we will not play mm -hmm. if you have bad lighting and so on so you, you really try to create a quite create a mood and pick, picking the right songs must have been interesting and a bit of a challenge too <laughs> yeah i mean you know i i believe strongly in mood and um and yeah i wanted the album to be something that helps create an atmosphere and, and you know i i listen this is the kind of album i listen to at home um music that kind of sets a tone and a feeling and yeah so I was thinking about all that um 
and as for picking the songs, well, you know, uh, we it, it kind of it came together in a really beautiful, organic way. Um, all the original pieces, um, a few of them were things that we'd had floating around for a few years, uh, old songs that we re- revisited when we started. Me and we being me and Tom, the producer, and mm-hmm. all the other session musicians who were at the studio and working on it with, with us. Um, yeah, so, you know, there were a few things that kind of came back around that uh, I'd had floating around for a while. Um, but most of it kind of just came quite naturally. And um, and as for, like, picking the cover pieces, because, yeah, of course, we did The Crying Game and um, a song called Por Que Te Vas. Um, but you know, the crying game is just a song that I, I love and, and, and so is Porque Tavas. I, you know, I, I, I always want to kind of cover pieces that I, I love, but that's kind of the hard thing about doing a cover. It's, you know, you, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot when you pick a song that you think is perfect. Cause then you're like, Oh, what, how do I, <laughs> I, I can't possibly do something as good, but you know, I, I'm doing a whistle version. So at least it's, it's different. It is. It is. I thought it was really well done. Actually, I didn't know what to expect when when I clicked on it because because it, it, when I first when we when I first emailed your your folks the, um, your representatives, it hadn't come out yet or I hadn't seen it yet. So it was uh, I found it over the past few days. Your tour. What's it? What's it like? You've been you've been playing shows now. I know you played a lot in L.A. Uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been but you've been playing shows elsewhere now. Uh, that must be exciting and and also somewhat daunting to go and play in New York and places like that. Yeah, it it is, you know, I at least, you know, cuz I've I've been in LA for 10 years and I know that there is a there you know people who know kind of what I do now and and there is kind of a, I, I there's like people who come to my show these days quite regularly if I put on a show in LA. So playing elsewhere was a little daunting at first, but um I did some shows in New York last summer and it was really fun. I have a wonderful band I play with out there. Um, and also, you know, New York is just, there's so much, it's such a big music scene. There's so many kind of little jazz bars and great music clubs. So, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, but I've played many other places where sometimes I wouldn't even know, like, who is going to come. Like, I played Luxembourg um, oh, wow. a few years ago where I was just like, wow, what am I doing in Luxembourg? But, you know, it, it's it's always interesting and it's pretty amazing to me to see who comes out and, you know, who who's interested in what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, I love that. Any any Canadian plans? You're not too, too far away. <laughs> oh, I would love to come to Canada. I love Canada. Some of my best friends in L.A. are from Canada, from Edmonton, actually. Oh, wow. We have, um, we have, a, we have listeners in Edmonton tonight. Oh, uh, well, shout out to Edmonton. Um, awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I um, I would love to come to Canada. I, I went last year on a tour. I was opening for a musician called Wise Blood. And we, we played in Toronto for two nights and Montreal for two nights. And it was February. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe not, not February. <laughs> I'd like yeah. a summer tour of Canada next time, please. Um, yes. But yeah, I, Hopefully we'll come back at some point. No plans as of yet, but I would love to. 
That'd be great to support the new. So uh, this is the inevitable question. I'm sure you've had to answer a, a million times. So what don't people know about what you do and how you prepare for it? I mean, how do you how do you keep yourself in whistling shape? What are the things that you shouldn't do? I mean, I remember talking to professional singers who refuse to talk during the day because it weakens their voice <laughs> for the evening, right? Well, you know, I wake up at 5 a.m. and I do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, um, run, I, I run 40k. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. Uh, I only drink, um, you know, egg whites. Um, no, uh, well, you know, for whistling, there are a few things, um, you know, you want to stay hydrated. I, I use chapstick. I love chapstick. Um, and, you know, it's, I'm not too precious about it. You know, there's not much you can do really, except I can't, you know, I wouldn't drink before a show, drink alcohol, because, you know, mm. that can kind of numb your lips a bit or your mouth you know makes you less less uh able to control um but yeah i'm you know that's about it i i just kind of i'm okay in, with that but i have heard other whistlers say you know with their superstitions and their rituals um i knew one whistler who wouldn't kiss his wife two weeks before a competition two you know, weeks just in case bru- <laughs> bruised his lips um, but, you know, maybe that's, wow. yeah, I, that might be a little extreme. Maybe there's something else going on. <laughs> well, Molly, it's been a great pleasure. Congratulations on a great record and, uh, and all the success and can't wait to see what, what comes next. And for sure, a summer tour, especially Edmonton, by the way, no offense to Edmonton, but you don't want to necessarily, you'd rather be there in July than February. I guarantee it. I've heard. Yeah, no, I, I'm steering clear until uh, July. Sorry, Edmonton. Um, but yes, for having me. Here's a subject that comes up. It's come up again because of a viral video. This happens quite often, but it's a subject that came up a lot. Uh, I think sort of as the pandemic waned, it was the abuse of service workers and how often it's happening these days uh, and why it's happening, why people are so short and so rude with people who are who are doing a job. Now, it came up a lot when it came to sort of enforcing mandates, right? That was part of the problem at first, whether it be on planes or in restaurants. People were sort of taking it out on staff, when oftentimes the staff, and in fact, most of the time, the staff had absolutely nothing to do with the rule itself, right? But the abuse they took because of it was, was kind of telling. You may have seen this video recently uh, on TikTok showing a couple in Edmonton getting into it with a staff member at a McDonald's drive-through. The video description explains that the man and the woman uh, were they apparently didn't want to park their car in a stall to receive their food. And when the, when they were finishing, when they, as they were arguing about that, then they, they want a refund. So the person at the window says, "Well, I can give you a refund. Just give me, you know, give me your card back or tap your card." And they don't want; they want cash instead, right? And then it descends, as these things always do. And if you're watching it with hindsight, of course, the thing is, and they're filming away on their phones, like people tend to do today, like they're on Dateline or you know the stars of their own feature film. Um, and you're watching it, thinking, "Why are you arguing with this person? It is so ridiculous." And then it gets nasty. Then it gets nasty. Um, they start to insult, they sort of hurl insults. The passenger of the car starts to hit, or hurl insults at the cashier. Have a listen. I don't want to park. Celebrity McDonald's. This is Edmonton, Alberta, girl. Gabe, I'm not you're parking. In Edmonton. Where are you from? Parking my Where car. Are you, Where are you from? English. Where are you from? 
get a career. Seriously. Do for your life. Seriously. You're so sad. It's Seriously. Seriously. Anyways, grab us that, some food. Okay. Okay. Food. I was so nice to you, you guys. Why are you, you, why you guys, using that word for me? I don't even know why you're talking to the passenger of my vehicle when I ordered the food at the window and I'm telling you that I don't want to park in reserve stall number two. And then you're using a word for me like single time. You guys listen to her. You're telling me that you want me to park. Yeah, you get the point, right? I mean, you know, where are you from? So all that stuff. It's just so, it's so infuriating to hear it and to see it because you think, why in why in the name of all that is normal would you go to McDonald's and berate the employee, right? I mean, they don't have any, they can't really talk back to you, right? Get a career, they say. And so, and then it goes on and the guy talks about his 50,000 followers on Instagram or some nonsense and getting a lawyer. It's all very embarrassing. I think there were consequences for the woman in that car. Um, but it just got me thinking about when did this become, if when filming it to top it off, when did this become in any way, shape or form acceptable? Now, that being said, sometimes we get impatient with bad service. That part I get, right? Sometimes we get impatient with bad service. But there's a very big difference between being a little curt with someone or not wanting to continue talking to a certain staff member that isn't helping you or someone on the phone and then sort of berating them or abusing them, right? Uh, Melanie Morrison is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Health Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. She studies this kind of behavior, and she joins me now. We'll try and figure out what it means and how to stop it. Melanie, thanks for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be here, Ben. Thanks. Uh, yet another example on social media. I think we see more of this, this kind of bad behavior towards service staff because of social media it gets posted and people lambaste those who are guilty of it. Are we still, I, I remember during the pandemic, we talked a lot about a rise in sort of rude behavior, but are we still seeing that? I think we are. I think that people are, are emboldened at the moment um, to lash out at individuals that are less powerful. Um, I think they've been emboldened by a lot of uh, different um, examples that they can draw from in media, our political uh, leaders, and some of the tactics that they use. Um, and I think that people in their day-to-day -day are feeling uh, like they have more of a right to engage in this type of behavior and, um, you know, really terrify individuals that are just trying to show up, do their job and get their paycheck. What's the dynamic? Because it seems odd in the places that it does escalate, because, of course, when you watch it in hindsight, if you, when you get to watch the escalation, you think that's ridiculous. Like, why would you fight over something so 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 completely inane? And yet that's how it starts often. And I think there is that distinction. I think when we can see some of these instances and when we look at them, um, you know, in real time when they're occurring and they're later published and then also the fallout, you know, what happens? There is that separation between, um, you know, location of where these instances occur. Uh, they're often affecting deeply, you know, service providers in, um, you know, fast food restaurants coffee shops, um, many of the brands that we know, this is what's transpiring. Um, yet, would they do this in their own place of work? Absolutely not. Would they Would they be desirous of taking down a staff member that works alongside them or a teammate or collaborator? Absolutely not. Um, so this is something that is specific 
to, um, you know, situations where there's uh, individuals with less power in the immediate and they're really, um, you know, being acted upon. And it's, it's uh, this, you know, this, this perpetration of behavior that is, that is horrific to watch um, anytime a clip is released. And we can see that there are ramifications to this behavior, you know, um, in instances where people that are actively engaged in this rude behavior are actually filming themselves and thinking that somehow this would be a positive for them, their own personal brand, if you will. And yet they're fired the next morning. So it's, it is highly illogical action here, but we do see it, you know, emerging because of these power balances in very, very day-to-day transactions. Yeah. I I, I still can't get over the fact that people actually record themselves abusing as if someone would say, hey, great job abusing that, you know, that McDonald's worker. Good for you standing up for yourself. That part of it always shocks me. The punching down, though, the punching down, what what interests me about this phenomenon, too, in many ways, is that it's kind of universal. Like you see people from all walks of life engaging in this. You know, there's the kind of the obvious sort mm-hmm. of they talk about the sort of entitled person who goes into, you know, basically the wealthy, for instance. But this kind of crosses all kinds of um, social what we think of as social structures and hierarchies. Mm-hmm. You're, you're absolutely right. We see this, you know, outside of penthouses in New York. We see this, um, you know, across our country here in Canada. Um, and you're absolutely right. In different locations um, enacted by people that we can assume run the gamut of different economic backgrounds and social classes. Um, we do see this um, taking place. And we often, though, see it perpetrated against certain types of individuals, right? Right. So people that might be, you know, racio-ethnic minorities um, in positions where they're working, um, you know, this manual labor uh, jobs in fast food environments and really getting the brunt of, you know, somebody's malice, somebody's um, meanness in a a day-to-day setting, um, and so we do see this happen and and it does you know it raises the question of who's doing this who needs this absolute sense of control you know to be enacted to go after somebody that is that is power uh, has less power than them um you know targeting them and then perpetrating this behavior we do see it though targeting you know women targeting men we see um you know groups that are just marginalized um more so in our society and with less economic power um less you know workplace power um and a lot of you know relegated to uh, lower rungs of the employment sphere so it's uh, something, though, that that crosses the gamut and perpetrators really need to look at themselves as to why they are doing this and enacting this type of, you know, horrific yeah. behavior toward others. Knowing that the service worker often is in no position to fight back or even talk back, for that matter, in some cases. Right. Mm-hmm. The yeah. customer is always right. Right, Ben? I mean, this is, you know, oftentimes, you know, the way people are trained and trained to believe this. So. Um, you know, standing up to them in the moment or having feeling like they actually have the power to walk away and stop this conversation or this engagement um, is an entirely different issue here um, because most won't feel uh, they have the power to do that. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I see, too, that people that sometimes you see it as something, you know, you can see the frustration build up and suddenly it blows in that situation. I think sometimes people who do this and, you know, but just because 
I mean, I think there are people who are genuinely good people who engage in bad behavior sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you see this happen in situations where all of a sudden they, they're in a situation where they feel like the power dynamics in their favor, and then they can lash out about much broader frustrations, as you pointed out, something they would never say to their boss or never say to someone in which the power dynamic was reversed and all of a sudden, you know, start to punch down. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we can definitely uh, see that this is the case. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's quite shocking every time that this happens. I think it's it is quite possible um, if we were to give, you know, some understanding, uh, a small smidgen of that, um, that people are experiencing a lot of weight on their shoulders right now due to a lot of environmental uh, forces. So there's, you know, the economic challenges people are facing, the daily frustrations people are facing. Um, we're coming out of a pandemic time. Um, you know, people are struggling, right? So that, you know, that that makes some sense uh, to see that, you know, who can I target? Who can I go after and express my frustration? Um, you know, displaced aggression, displaced anxiety, all of those types of forces. But nevertheless, it's becoming you know, I mean, it's it's not supportable by any means. And this type of lashing out, um, you know, the, the chance to gain some control here in an interaction with a powerless other um, is not a good look. No, it's never a good look. I was once told yeah. years and years ago that often you can tell a lot about someone about how they treat service, how they treat you know, a, wa- a waiter in a right. restaurant, for instance. I mean, yeah. I, it is a bit of yeah. a dead giveaway. Melanie Morrison is with us this half hour, professor in the Department of Psychology and Health Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. We're talking about lashing out at service staff. We've seen sort of a growth of it. Perhaps we're becoming less civil, period. But we've seen a growth of it of late, too. And it's just these sort of abusive behavior that people can engage in when dealing with members of service staff. There's a video out uh, recently, another one of a couple at Edmonton berating a McDonald's a staff member at a drive through window about God only knows what. It just starts to turn very nasty and very personal very fast. And it's and it's embarrassing. Uh, there were consequences, by the way, I believe, for one of the two engaged in, uh, in that. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about how do you stop it? Because it feels like we, even though it's tough to put a genie back into the bottle, sometimes we're going to have to try and do it in this case. That's next. Melanie Morrison is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Health Studies at the University of Saskatchewan. We're talking about bad behavior towards service staff. I don't know if you've witnessed it, if you've done it yourself. A lot of good people sometimes get involved in arguments in situations where they're getting frustrated. That happens. I mean, we've all felt frustrated with service staff over time if somehow you're not being able to get to where you need to get to, especially on the phone, for instance. So, Melanie, in that situation, psychologically, People do get frustrated sometimes with bad service, right? But there, it's sure. no reason to berate the other person on the end of the line. There must be ways to try to diffuse the situation or at least recognize that there is a line there. And, and you may be impatient or a slightly being slightly curt. That's okay. But when it starts to get abusive and personal, I mean, needless to say, you really need to know when to nip that in the bud. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think once it crosses those lines that you've delineated there, that it's, that it's, um, you know, it, it has gone too far. So when you're personally attacking someone, um, you're making, um, you know, racist comments, sexist comments, um, you know, engaging in stereotyping um, and lashing out at people verbally, um, you know, heaven forbid, physically, uh, that this is this is just gone way too far. Um, you're absolutely right. People do experience frustration and they do you know, they will be curt on occasion. Um, I think it's best in those instances to take a breath, 
uh, to slow it, slow it down, uh, recognize that we are, you know, literally figured in this together, you know, any transaction that you want to see come, you know, to an end, uh, you need that other person across the desk or, uh, you know, behind that window. So it is important to recognize that and to, to breathe through these things. Um, but, you know, when it crosses over and you've got that verbal abuse, um, and those personal attacks taking place, then somebody, you know, is is exercising their meanness. And this is just something that is uncalled for. And in these instances, you know, what can staff do as well? Um, you know, really um, closing that window. Yes. Uh, asking, yes. asking someone's manager, I'm just going to go get the manager back away from it and not try to take it on themselves because they are dealing with a power differential there. And they don't know what what this, you know, these other individuals will be, you know, individual or individuals will be doing. And they're also, you know, placing themselves in danger then, you know, and I think the first step is to be self-protective. You owe it to yourself. There is, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, you know, telling the tale of the interaction, getting that support from your managerial staff is really, really important. And I think and then I think what we want to do there is to ensure that our staff feel comfortable to close that window, to stop the conversation, if you'll even call it that, and back away. You know, I think that's the wisest thing to do, especially in today's, uh, you know, day and age. Right. And it's, it just amazes me sometimes that people can't see the human being in the uniform. You know, I mean, I Absolutely. think we see it at airports. We see it. I mean, I get, again, I understand sometimes people get frustrated and, I, and there are bad people out there who do this purposely because they're just, you know, they are who they are. And there are a lot of people you see seem perfectly normal who kind of lose it. I remember back to my service staff days, having people lose it on you. Perfectly normal human beings. You think, what's up with them? What's got into them today? But it's the dehumanizing of a part of it that seems so awful. If you witness it, and you're someone else, say, standing in a line, should you step in or should you just, should you go get a manager? I'm just always wondering, because there are, there is that bystander effect in all this as well. That's true. I mean, I think that, I think that most people, the staff member included, the service worker is shocked initially that this is taking place. So there is that, that moment in time that has to, it has to wash over you. You have to process this cognitively in terms of what is happening. Um, However, the minute that this goes on, um, you know, too long, the minute that this has gone to a level that is irredeemable, it's it's a time to to go and find some support. I mean, find some, you know, the manager. If if this service worker is engaged and actively, you know, taking the brunt of this person's quote unquote frustration or animosity, it really behooves us as bystanders to go and seek help. So is there somebody in the back that we could call, another staff member that could call to the back? You know, um, anything along those lines to gain, you know, to to assist and maybe even stepping in and just saying, I think it's good if we just separate right now. You know, yeah. I mean, that's it. But you also, you know, we we have a much more safe culture here versus say something in the United States where Fair there enough. is gun culture involved. Um, you know, and so, you know, a bystander would have to take that into consideration and balance the cost, you know, the, the, the uh, costs in the moment and their ability to intervene safely. So I think that that is something that we all as bystanders have to consider. Um, the, 
the challenge here is that it's split second almost, or will feel like it. And it's a, it's a challenge to know exactly what to do and whether you can implement that decision right away. Yeah, it's honestly, it's one of the rare times you'll be involved in a situation so tense if you're just going about your day-to-day life when there are those confrontations you see, because you so rarely see confrontation uh, as you wander about the world. Uh, uh, Melanie, thank you so much. Absolutely, Ben. My pleasure. Thanks again. The man who killed four members of a Muslim family and injured a fifth in London, Ontario, nearly three years ago now, did indeed commit an act of terrorism. 23-year-old Nathaniel Veltman was found guilty on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder back in November. Now, he purposely drove his truck into the Afsal family uh, in 2021, in June of 2021, killing 46-year-old Salman Afsal, his 44-year-old wife, Madiha, uh, their 15-year-old daughter, Yuna, Yumna, rather, and her 74-year-old grandmother, Talat Afzal. Uh, The couple's nine-year-old son was seriously hurt but survived. The crimes came with an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. But the question of what, if any, role terrorism played in the attack was central to today's sentencing decision. And Justice Renee Pomerantz said at the outset of the trial that she thought it was terrorist activity. And here's how she explained it. The offender did not just want to kill the Afsal family, nor was this an isolated act of revenge against a so-called Muslim grooming gang. The offender wanted to commit a crime against all Muslims by threatening their sense of safety and security. He wanted, as he put it in the manifesto that he'd written, to make life difficult for Muslims so that they would leave the country. Crown Prosecutor Sarah Sheikh said outside the courthouse that the judge's move to label the 23-year-old a terrorist is important. The offender murdered four generations of the Afsal family members and seriously injured the youngest because of his hateful, intolerant, ignorant and Islamophobic ideology. It is an acknowledgement that the offender's attack was not only targeted and directed towards the Afsal family, it was also targeted and directed towards the entire Muslim community. The sentence is the strictest penalty under Canadian law, obviously. Uh, Veltman has also been sentenced to a concurrent life sentence for the attempted murder of the boy who survived the attack. Uh, The case was the first time a Canadian jury had heard legal arguments about white supremacist or white nationalist terrorism, far-right extreme terrorism. And the ruling should give police and prosecutors clear guidance on when or whether to pursue terrorism cases involving white nationalism. Joining me now is Michael Nesbitt. He's an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. Michael, thanks for your time tonight. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Perhaps if we can start uh, just at why this case was so important from the get-go, because I think you were actually uh, interviewed about this before the case had even begun, about why it was going to be important from a terrorism perspective, or at least a terrorism law perspective in this country. Yeah, it, honestly, it's important for more reasons than you might expect. So one is we, until the last four years, we've had almost no, quote-unquote, far-right uh, extremists charged with terrorism. So in the greater scheme of things, this is really, really new for Canada. It's also the first time that we've had someone charged, particularly on the far right, where they weren't easily associated with a group. So in the past, what we've done is sort of said, you're either what we call a self-nominating group. So the Toronto 18 is the best known such group. But even they were then associated immediately with Al-Qaeda. Or we've just immediately associated individuals with al-Qaeda and ISIS. And that mattered because when you're proving the ideological and political components of terrorism, you could simply associate the individual with the broader ideology, which is available online. There's lots of documents about it. And that was sort of how we got to showing the terrorism element of the offense in those cases. 
it is different when you have an individual, so a quote unquote lone wolf. So someone who's not planning with others, right? How do you find out what their ideology is? How do you find out what they're doing? And then aren't associated with one particular group. So have sort of a potpourri ideology that draws from various groups, a transnational far right ideology might be one way to put it. And so we hadn't seen prosecutions of this sort before, which means in theory, we weren't sure how successful they would be, uh, how this sort of stuff would be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. And so obviously it, it has been successful to pro- for the prosecution here. So that's a really big step in terms of public safety in Canada, because you know it's a major threat right now. And it's one that we want to be sure that is captured by our terrorism laws. But as I said, there are many reasons this is important. The other one is we haven't had a jury trial for a murder as terrorism case before. So this was a first. Uh, It's only our second murder as terrorism case. Uh, The preponderance of our cases historically have been preemptive arrests. So arrests, uh, thankfully, for uh, stuff at the planning or the facilitation stage before anything took place. Most of the original prosecutions for the first almost 20 years or so were ISIS or Al-Qaeda affiliated. And so I think there's a real importance in indicating that to various communities in Canada that other concerns are taken seriously as well, that uh, the far right threat when it is threatening to a community in ways like this is taken seriously. And that when terrorism or a terrorist act and acts that look to the rest of us for all the world like terrorism are actually called out and treated as such. And we do have a bit of a history of sort of having some acts and and you know, one that comes to mind is a mosque attack in Quebec City a number of years ago that was not called terrorism. So it's important to see that label be placed on these sort of activities in these sort of instances. It was interesting to see, too, how unequivocal the judge in this case was about calling it terrorism, saying that not only were the motives and the beliefs there, the actions were clearly there, that this was driven by an ideology. The ideology, although not spread, he was indeed a lone wolf and hadn't sort of spread a manifesto anywhere, but that this was clearly fit all the the criteria that one would need to see for it to be an act of terrorism. Yeah, really powerful judgment, honestly, reading it. I I think that's that's a really important point because... When you get to the technical legal side, you've got to prove a number of elements to prove it's terrorism beyond the murder. And one of those elements is an ideological or political or religious motive. And another one is a political purpose. And so I I think still coming out of this judgment, there's some uncertainty about what the difference is there or when you'd ever have a political purpose, but not have a political motive. But aside from that, I think this judgment is really important in indicating that it doesn't have to be one of these situations where you sort of had a whole group taking responsibility for something, where you had a manifesto out there that the whole world was reading, right? It's more about the intention uh, that the action is projected beyond the crime scene is one way I usually put it. So that, that is, this is not an act of hate against an individual because someone hates an individual, right? That would that would be murder. This is something where the intention was to demonstrate beyond the crime scene to a group, either that they weren't wanted or were disliked. And so I think that was what the judge was getting at in that instance. And that's a really important point to make for, especially going forward when when we do have threats in Canada of sort of lone wolf type terrorism. 
Right. I, I was struck again, you mentioned it uh, about the wording. The offender wanted to commit a crime against all Muslims by threatening mm-hmm. their sense of safety and security. He wanted, as he put it in the manifesto, to make life difficult for Muslims so that they would leave the country. And in some senses, you, you, I mean, it, it's, it's, I suppose, in, in some ways, it doesn't adhere to our old definitions of terrorism, where there's always sort of a larger manifesto out there, whether it be, you know, any number of terrorism group, terrorist groups over the many, many years. Uh, this was a bit more individual. At the same time, uh, as you pointed out, the end result was the same and the motives were the same yeah and and i again i I just think that's so important because it it really followed what the law says right rather than a sort of a preconceived notion of what terrorism might look like or what it might feel like I, i i do think in this case this also for many of us canadians did feel and look like terrorism. But I think I think the judge did a really good job of saying, look, this is how we've defined it in Canada, in our criminal code. This is why we defined it in this way. This is this is important. And from a public safety perspective, it's important because we have a history in North America of individuals saying, don't form a group because you'll get captured as a group. Go do it as an individual. And so the response from uh, the justice system has to be, no, you can, you know, if you're going to go out and hurt people, intimidate people, commit terrorism, then we can call it as such, uh, even if it is the the sort of the individual without the manifesto. Yeah. And, and also his his intent, at least according to the, the evidence that was put in during the trial, that he was hoping to inspire others, which, again, is, is a hallmark of a terrorist act. Yeah, exactly. Michael Nesbitt is an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. Uh, we're talking about a judge today in uh, Ontario, a Superior Court judge in, in Ontario, um, ruling today that the attack on a Muslim family in London, Ontario, an attack you may remember well, um, was in fact an act of terrorism. The perpetrator was uh, sentenced to life in prison, but that this indeed was an act not just of murder, it was an act of terrorism. And the the judge goes into great lengths to describe why she found that to be the case. Michael, now that that this has been out there, does it help authorities at all understand what this law can mean? And how how would that impact sort of investigations on the ground, for instance? You know, it's a good question. To be honest, I'm I'm not sure, but I can say a couple of things. Mm One is it's a step, it's a strong decision, a sentencing decision. And so it does provide more detail, just that those of us within the community, legal community hadn't seen from a judgment in terms of the, the real specifics about what we're talking about when we say, okay, this was politically motivated or this was ideologically motivated. What does something mean to be ideologically motivated? The, the concern has always been, you don't want to just say, well, the crime was committed with an idea. Right. right? Or, or a way of thinking, because most crime is committed with an idea. So we must mean something different. So what, what they were trying to get at here is what is that something different in the t- case of terrorism, where we're going to we're going to essentially punish it more for having that additional ideological. It makes it worse in a way. And so I, I think they've provided some clarity going forward. I think they've provided affirmation for police and prosecutors that we can in Canada go after something that we, we've been, frankly, a little hesitant to do in the past, which is the sort of lone wolf, potpourri ideology, extremist terrorist actor. Uh, which again they managed to do in this case, and and because it's the first time, it just it provides that authority that this can be done successfully. I guess the other thing to say is just it it hasn't always been done in this way in the past. So we can point to a number of cases in the 2010s. I mean, not many, a small handful, but a few cases in the 2010s that look to a lot of us, whether you study this stuff or not, like terrorism. 
uh, weren't charged as such. And public statements seemed to indicate that they weren't charged uh, because the ideology was incoherent or because the individual was grabbing from various different ideologies rather than that of one particular group, or that the individual wasn't motivated in one case by a, a cultural component. I'm not sure where that one came yeah. from. At the time. Or even, and so the, I, yeah, and the group being targeted sometimes was not, I can say, I mean, even, the, even that I thought, perhaps this is more perception than anything else, but even the group being targeted might have been, might have played a, played a role in that as well. I, I mean, there were lots of questions about all this sort of stuff. I think there's a lot of clarity now in terms of, okay, there's not a mandatory coherence requirement, right? Bluntly speaking, none of these guys are coming with a coherent worldview or ideology, right? So so to pretend that some have it and some don't is, I think, pretty facile, frankly. And so, but but it's good to say, but you can still have an ideology, even, even if it's incoherent. So I, I think that that part in particular is really helpful. Now, the only reason I was hesitant there a little bit in saying, I'm not sure how much this will help the police is I think they've been moving this direction for the last three or four years. Right. Our, our understanding yeah. of terrorism has, has begun to evolve and everything else is catching up to it. It has. And and so our, our arrests and our prosecutions over the last four or five years, and I've run the numbers on this, much more reflects what the government itself is saying in terms of the threat environment. Right. So it, in the threat environment, we're saying it's ISIS and Al Qaeda and far right. That's what, that's what government documents are saying, the people who are paid to study this stuff by the government. Uh, and that is essentially what our arrest landscape in Canada over the last four or five years has looked like. So I, I think they're getting there. But again, even, even in that case, most of them are associated with ISIS on the one hand, or possibly Al-Qaeda, or on the other hand, a listed terrorist entity on the far right, like Adam Waffen Division. Right. Uh, we've had a couple of those in the last couple of years. Whereas again, this one's a little bit different in that we're not associating this guy with a listed terrorist entity. It's that individual ide- uh, ideology where he's picked, a list, seems to have picked from ideologies and ideas sort of out there on the internet and elsewhere. Yeah, it does have an impact on him, though. I mean, this this declaration, this finding will impact him, I believe, when it comes to his ability to get parole would be the main thing. But in the sentencing, it does. It is a mitigating factor. Aggravating, aggravating factor. factor rather. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of things there. One is murder is is a more serious crime in Canada in that it's life in jail. Uh, you can apply after 25 years for parole where the terrorism designation then matters in this, you're not getting more than life in jail. We don't have multiple life sentences in Canada, um, like they might in the U in some place in the U S so you're getting your life in jail. It, where it'll come into play is at that 25 year mark, right? The, the sort of the recognition that the terrorism motive played a role too. And so in the application for parole, that will have to be considered. I, I think going beyond that, and I think the judge did a really good job of saying this is there's a symbolic value to this kind of stuff too, right? To tell communities that when they're targeted, uh, when the idea behind an attack like this is to say you're not wanted here, there's, there's value in the in the justice system saying, essentially, no, you are wanted here. And what this person did was so wrong, we consider it terrorism and we're going to aggravate even on murder. Well, Michael, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 